The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and of you I will make a great nation. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, we're in the midst of this sermon series where I invited questions from the congregation about theological issues. This was the second most asked set of questions around religion and violence. Questions came like this. How do we go about loving our enemies? If Christianity preaches love and kindness, why are Christians the most hostile people you'll meet? Related is the question in our title today, why does religion seem to be the basis for so much violence? Hostility, enemies, violence, these are not subjects that we want to have to talk about. These are not subjects we would normally address on a Sunday morning when we gather for worship, and yet there are events all around us that make these questions so very timely and relevant for us to consider this morning. As Dr. Tankersley raised in his pastoral prayer, it's so easy when we begin to think about conflict or violence to automatically blame the others, to look outside of ourselves for the cause or the source or the problem. And yet, before we get into all of that, I want to invite you to join me in examining ourselves and to look within and see if perhaps there are any vestiges of wrath or violence we maintain in ourselves and in our views of God. As I began to read through all the questions weeks ago that you all turned in, I began to put these together. And I began to think about praying for our troops I pray for the safety of our troops. Maybe you do as well from time to time. But I begin to wonder how close that prayer is to a prayer that asks, asks God to vanquish the enemy. And how different is that from the biblical stories that we have where it appears that God takes one side or another in a conflict and decimates or destroys a whole people. Usually when we read it in the scripture, it bothers us a little bit that God would do such a thing. And then I thought about it on a more personal level. When I find myself in a conflict, or I'm feeling that someone's attacking me, I usually ask God for help. But when I began to reflect on those prayers, I realized that so often my prayer moves from help me get through this to help me win, to help me put the other one down. 
make sure that everyone's clear that I'm right. And it's usually a while in my prayers before I get to asking God, have I made a mistake? God, could you show me my role in this conflict? Could you help me see, Lord, how I might help resolve this where all the parties are considered equal? It's hard for me, at least, to move from sort of a win-lose mentality in a conflict to a win-win or a situation where I consider what the other perspective might be or even think whether or not my perspective and God's perspective are the same. It's so easy to assume that whatever our view is, is God's view. Because we think of ourselves as children of God. So we're insiders. Certainly God is on our side. But when we think more about it, we realize that probably that person or those others on the other side are thinking very similar thoughts. We were in a Bible study here at the church recently and began to talk about some of these current events i suggested that at the base of so much of this is what theologians call the human condition and what theologians say is we live in a state of sin with a capital s that is we live in a state where often we're out of alignment with god we live in a state of separation if you will from god and god's will so very often so theologians say we are sinners because we are self-centered rather than God-centered. It's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, I'm a child of God, but I'm not sure they are. So easy to divide people into us and them and then to demonize the other and assume we are all right and they are all wrong. But as Christians, we're challenged to try to take a step back and see God's perspective, perhaps a broader and bigger perspective than we have considered before. I think our text today from Exodus can help us understand some of this and put some of this in a context. These are a set of stories in the book of Exodus telling us about how God is shaping and forming a people that God has called called for a special purpose there to be a community of faith that will be a blessing to the whole world but as you begin to read through these stories it becomes clear very quickly that these people live in violent times indeed violence is sanctioned by all the competing gods and be sure about that there were lots of different gods people were worshiping that were competing for their loyalty and for their faithfulness the Hebrew people refer to their God as YHWH in Scripture, translated in most of our Bibles in English as the Lord, using Lord in capital letters. But the Lord is competing for power and influence. The people are not yet clear who's the one true God. Most of them still believe there are multiple gods, and they're trying to decide which one to attend to, which one you can count on. And this God, for these people, the Lord, has just delivered them, freed them from an evil dictator, led them through the wilderness, shaping them into a people, leading them toward a land of milk and honey so that they might be 
a people of blessing. And in the midst of all that, Moses, their leader, has gone up on the mountain to be closer to God to figure out how he can get these Ten Commandments to the people. And while he's up on the mountain, the people decide they've waited long enough for Moses. Maybe he's not coming back. And they begin to fashion and shape a God for themselves. Listen to verse 7 and 8. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And what we begin to see is this dynamic that there's competition, but not just competition from outside, but it comes from within the group as well. There's competition amongst these people trying to decide who to worship. Where is God? Who can we count on? And in the midst of that, sin and idolatry and enemies and hostility are all a part of the formula. So easy, though. For us to not think about ourselves or our group as a part of that and think it's all outside of us. But it reminded me of the question that's recorded in the Gospels that Jesus asked when he said to those listening, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye and not notice the log in your own eye? Our faith challenges us to look within. We all have some personal work to do, Christianity suggests, in terms of our role in whatever conflict or hostility or making of enemies that we might have. If we're to love our enemies, we all have a challenge before us. But some of these questions were clearly indicating they wanted to talk about this on an international level or on the level of nation states facing off against each other. There was a brilliant theologian from the last uh, century named Reinhold Niebuhr. I've put his name and a quote from him in your outline. He pointed out that nations, by definition, act with self-interest as their highest value. Nations, he says, by definition, act with self-interest as their highest value. And he says, therefore, when we try to apply Christian principles to such a situation, it usually does not make sense to suggest that a national government that's been formed to protect a people and organize them for defense use love of enemy or self-sacrificing for the good of another as their ethic does not work. It's contrary to their very purpose. Niebuhr points out that national leaders do not very much consult religious ideals when making decisions about matters of national defense. 
or of going to war because those ideals that we have contained in faith do not apply so very clearly. But just like individuals, nations want to think that their cause is good and just. So you can see that on both sides in a conflict, leaders will use the language of God to support their cause. It's not uncommon for a leader from any part of the world to quote a sacred text or two or to use religious imagery in building the case for their cause. But so very often, it's not that the decision was really rooted in faith or religious ideals, but added later. And I think that's one of the main reasons that it seems like religion so often is the cause for so much violence. But I also found it surprising in our text today, God considers destroying the people. Now God has called these people and said they're to be a set-apart people, and now they're barely getting started as God's people, and God's thinking about destroying them. Did you hear that in verse 9? The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. It's a little bit disturbing to me to have a God or an image of God where you think is your protector one moment and then the next moment is considering destroying you. And yet that's the kind of situation we find in this text today. But one of the Bible commentators was really helpful here. He said, we need to remember that between these people and the Lord, there had been established a covenant. And the covenant asked for loyalty and a single kind of faithfulness. And that that covenant was going to be very important for the work that God was wanting to do. And so when the people break the boundary of the covenant, it is serious business. As I was trying to think about this, I thought this Bible commentator was very helpful. He said it might help us to understand, to think about wrath as being the flip side of God's love. He suggested we think about when something we really care about gets violated, how do we respond? trying to think of an illustration for this i began to think about parenthood imagine yourself if you would as parents of teenagers and you're getting ready to leave home for the first time and leave them there and you've had the talk with them about how this is going to work and what they can and cannot do while you're gone and one of the ground rules is no parties but then when you return the first thing you see are tire tracks in your front yard. And then you notice the beer cans in the bushes. And then you go inside and there's a cigarette burn on the new dining room table and stains on the carpet and empty pizza boxes on the counter. And then you walk into the living room and someone you do not know is asleep on your couch. As a parent, how do you think you would respond? I think perhaps wrath burning hot would not be too strong. <laughs> Looking for someone to hurt might be in your mind because something precious to you has been violated. 
and something has to be done. If God did not respond in a situation like in the text today, we would think that God really did not care. There would be something wrong with a God who had a covenant and when it's violated so egregiously, does not respond at all. But that's the scenario in the text. Moses has gone up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And before he can get back, there's a riotous party going to worship and sacrifice to a golden calf. A handmade God, a sign of fertility for the people. Perhaps wrath is the flip side of God's love. But it all points up that there is a complicated relationship between love and hate and hostility and care for community and safe borders and clear boundaries and who are friends and who are enemies and how do we care for a community and what makes for life in a place so that it will thrive. I think our text can help us see that these are complex matters as multiple factors flow into the mix and so many different levels and layers of things get intertwined into a situation. I think when we think about violence and religion that there are no easy answers and any time someone tries to suggest it's just as clear as can be and as simple as can be, I think they've left out some of the factors that we need to consider. Even today, there's so many areas that we could have discussed that we didn't have time for. We haven't even talked about the role of mental illness and how often that's related to spiritual ideas in a person's mind before they perpetuate or perpetrate violence. We haven't talked about the role of martyrs and what gives rise to martyrs where someone's willing to die and they're trying to kill as many others at the same time. There's a whole debate going on among academics, particularly in sociology and religion, about whether or not people who perpetrate violence in the name of religion are the least representative of that religion or the most representative of that religion. There's a series of books that have been written since 9-11 trying to explain why that happened and what is going on in our world. And many of them try to separate religion and say that that is the cause for it. But an author recently has done a survey of all that literature and using the analysis of those books. And he says there's no way to separate out religion from culture in today's world. And so there's no meaningful way to isolate religion on its own as the cause for violence. Then there's a whole realm of study that's been going on for hundreds of years in the Christian tradition about what makes for a just war that religion can support and what makes for an unjust war that religion should condemn. There's so many different ways to think about these issues. And if you read or listen to the news these days, it can all just be too much. As I was working on the sermon this week, about halfway through all this, and I'm looking at all these different avenues, I'm thinking to myself, this is too much. Maybe I'll just choose a nice little text that says, let's love each other and preach on that. It would be so much easier. But Jesus reminded his disciples of their need to pray always and not lose heart. It's in Luke 18. 
And it made me wonder, can we be a, pe a people of peace and love and reconciliation? And I thought if we're going to be those people, we need to remember that teaching of Jesus to pray always and not lose heart. And I thought perhaps it would be helpful to close with a prayer that spoke to that. There's one in our hymnal. You've probably heard it before. It's attributed to St. Francis. Perhaps this is something you can use. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. And where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.